Part Two, Chapter One of The Life of Florence Nightingale, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah. The Life of Florence Nightingale, Volume One, by Edward Tyus Cook. The Call Continued. Three. Within two days of the publication of the dispatch from Constantinople, Miss Nightingale and her friends had made their plans. She submitted them to the minister in the following letter addressed to his wife. Miss Nightingale to Mrs. Herbert, 1 Upper Harley Street, October 14, 1854. My dearest, I went to Belgrave Square this morning for the chance of catching you or Mr. Herbert even, had he been in town. A small private expedition of nurses has been organized for Scutari, and I have been asked to command it. I take myself out and one nurse. Lady Maria Forrester has given two hundred pounds to take out three others. We feed and lodge ourselves there, and are to be no expense whatever to the country." Lord Clarendon has been asked by Lord Palmerston to write to Lord Stratford for us, and has consented. Dr. Andrew Smith of the Army Medical Board, whom I have seen, authorizes us and gives us letters to the chief medical officer at Scutari. I do not mean to say that I believe the Times accounts, but I do believe that we may be of use to the wounded wretches. Now to business. 1. Unless my lady's committee feel that this is a thing which appeals to the sympathies of all, and urge me, rather than barely consent, I cannot honorably break my engagement here, and I write to you as one of my mistresses. 2. What does Mr. Herbert say to the scheme itself? Does he think it will be objected to by the authorities? Would he give us any advice or letters of recommendation? And are there any stores for the hospital he would advise us to take out? Dr. Smith says that nothing is needed. I enclose a letter from E. Do you think it any use to apply to Miss Burdett Coote? We start on Tuesday, if we go, to catch the Marseille boat of the 31st for Constantinople, where I leave my nurses, thinking the medical staff at Scutari will be more frightened than amused at being bombarded by a parcel of women, and I cross over to Scutari with someone from the embassy to present my credentials from Dr. Smith and put ourselves at the disposal of the doctors. 3. Would you or someone of my committee write to Lady Stratford to say, this is not a lady but a real hospital nurse, of me, and she has had experience? My uncle went down this morning to ask my father and mother's consent. Would there be any use in my applying to the Duke of Newcastle for his authority? Believe me, dearest, in haste, ever yours, F. Nightingale. Perhaps it is better to keep it quite a private thing, and not to apply to Governor qua Governor. This letter was posted on Saturday. Mr. Herbert had left London to spend Sunday at Bournemouth, and thence, unaware of the communication which was on its way to him from Miss Nightingale, he addressed the following letter to her. Sidney Herbert to Miss Nightingale. Bournemouth, 
October 15, 1854. Dear Miss Nightingale, You will have seen in the papers that there is a great deficiency of nurses at the hospital at Scutari. The other alleged deficiencies, namely of medical men, lint, sheets, etc., must, if they have really ever existed, have been remedied ere this, as the number of medical officers with the army amounted to one to every ninety-five men in the whole force, being nearly double what we have ever had before, and thirty more surgeons went out three weeks ago, and would by this time, therefore, be at Constantinople. A further supply went on Thursday, and a fresh batch sail next week. As to medical stores, they have been sent out in profusion, lint by the ton weight, 15,000 pairs of sheets, medicine, wine, arrowroot in the same proportion, and the only way of accounting for the deficiency at Scutari, if it exists, is that the mass of stores went to Varna and was not sent back when the army left for the Crimea. But four days would have remedied this. In the meanwhile, fresh stores are arriving. But the deficiency of female nurses is undoubted, none but male nurses having ever been admitted to military hospitals. It would be impossible to carry about a large staff of female nurses with the army in the field, but at Scutari, having now a fixed hospital, no military reason exists against their introduction, and I am confident they might be introduced with great benefit, for hospital orderlies must be very rough hands, and most of them, on such an occasion as this, very inexperienced ones. I receive numbers of offers from ladies to go out, but they are ladies who have no conception of what an hospital is, nor of the nature of its duties, and they would, when the time came, either recoil from the work or be entirely useless, and consequently, what is worse, entirely in the way. Nor would these ladies probably ever understand the necessity, especially in a military hospital, of strict obedience to rule. Lady M. Forrester, Lord Roden's daughter, has made some proposal to Dr. Smith, the head of the Army Medical Department, either to go with or to send out trained nurses. I apprehend she means from Fitzroy Square, John Street, or some such establishment. The Reverend Mr. Hume, once chaplain to the General Hospital at Birmingham, and better known as author of the scheme for transferring the city churches to the suburbs, has offered to go out himself as chaplain with two daughters and twelve nurses. He was in the army seven years and has been used to hospitals, and I like the tone of his letters very much. I think from both of these offers practical effects may be drawn. But the difficulty of finding nurses who are at all versed in their business is probably not known to Mr. Hume, and Lady M. Forrester probably has not tested the willingness of the trained nurses to go, and is incapable of directing or ruling them. There is but one person in England that I know of who would be capable of organizing and superintending such a scheme, and I have been several times on the point of asking you, hypothetically, if, supposing the attempt were made, you would undertake to direct it. The selection of the rank and file of nurses will be very difficult. No one knows it better than yourself. The difficulty of finding women equal to a task, after all, full of horrors and requiring, besides knowledge and goodwill, 
great energy and great courage, will be great. The task of ruling them and introducing system among them, great. And not the least will be the difficulty of making the whole work smoothly with the medical and military authorities out there. This it is which makes it so important that the experiment should be carried out by one with a capacity for administration and experience. A number of sentimental, enthusiastic ladies turned loose into the hospital at Scutari would probably, after a few days, be Mises a la porte, by those whose business they would interrupt and whose authority they would dispute. My question simply is, would you listen to the request to go and superintend the whole thing? You would, of course, have plenary authority over all the nurses, and I think I could secure you the fullest assistance and cooperation from the medical staff, and you would also have an unlimited power of drawing on the government for whatever you thought requisite for the success of your mission. On this part of the subject, the details are too many for a letter, and I reserve it for our meeting. For whatever decision you take, I know you will give me every assistance and advice. I do not say one word to press you. You are the only person who can judge for yourself which of conflicting or incompatible duties is the first or the highest, but I must not conceal from you that I think upon your decision will depend the ultimate success or failure of the plan, your own personal qualities, your knowledge and your power of administration, and among greater things, your rank and position in society give you advantages in such a work which no other person possesses. If this succeeds, an enormous amount of good will be done now, and to persons deserving everything at our hands, and a prejudice will have been broken through, and a precedent established which will multiply the good to all time. I hardly like to be sanguine as to your answer, if it were yes, I am certain the Bracebridges would go with you and give you all the comfort you would require, and which their society and sympathy only could give you. I have written very long, for the subject is very near my heart. Liz, Mrs. Herbert, is writing to Mrs. Bracebridge to tell her what I am doing. I go back to town tomorrow morning. Shall I come to you between three and five? Will you let me have a line at the war office to let me know? There is one point which I have hardly a right to touch upon, but I know you will pardon me. If you were inclined to undertake this great work, would Mr. and Mrs. Nightingale give their consent? The work would be so national, and the request made to you, proceeding from the government, who represent the nation, comes at such a moment, that I do not despair of their consent." Deriving your authority from the government, your position would secure the respect and consideration of everyone, especially in a service where official rank carries so much weight. This would secure to you every attention and comfort on your way and there, together with a complete submission to your orders. I know these things are a matter of indifference to you, except so far as they may further the great objects you have in view but they are of importance in themselves and of every importance to those who have a right to take an interest in your personal position and comfort. I know you will come to a wise decision. God grant it may be in accordance with my hopes. Believe me, dear Miss Nightingale, ever yours, 
Sidney Herbert. There was no hitch, such as Sidney Herbert half feared, from reluctance on the part of Miss Nightingale's parents. Her uncle, Mr. Samuel Smith, husband of her Aunt May, of whose helpfulness we have heard, had already half obtained their consent to her going as a volunteer. All hesitation was removed when the news came that she was asked to go by and for the government itself. My love, wrote Miss Nightingale's sister to a friend, October 18. Government has asked, I should say entreated, Flo to go out and help in the hospital at Scutari. I am sure you will feel that it is a great and noble work, and that it is a real duty, for there is no one, as they tell her, and I truly believe, who has the knowledge and the zeal necessary to make such a step succeed. And to the same friend a day or two later, before in Harley Street I did not feel sure that she was right. There seemed so much to be done at home, but now there is no doubt that she is fitted to do this work, and that no one else is, and that it is a work. I must say the way in which all things have tended to and fitted her for this is so very remarkable that one cannot but believe she was intended for it. None of her previous life has been wasted. Her experience all tells, all the gathered stores of so many years. Her Kaiserswerth, her sympathy with the R. Catholic system of work, her travels, her search into the hospital question, her knowledge of so many different minds and different classes, all are serving so curiously, and much more than I have time for. Yes, and perhaps even the difficulties which affectionate solicitude had placed in Florence Nightingale's way might have been counted among her preparations for a task involving great power of will and determination. Miss Nightingale saw Mr. Herbert on Monday, October 16, and the matter was arranged between them. Mrs. Sidney Herbert and the other ladies of the Harley Street Committee readily released their superintendent. Her faithful friends, Mr. and Mrs. Bracebridge, agreed to accompany her. Mr. Herbert had assured Miss Nightingale of their willingness without any previous consultation, a fine instance, surely, of friendly confidence. The Duke of Newcastle, who had some slight personal acquaintance with Miss Nightingale, and the other members of the cabinet cordially approved the initiative of their colleague, and three days later Miss Nightingale received her official appointment and instructions. The Secretary at War to Miss Nightingale War Office, October 19, 1854 Madame, having consented at the pressing instance of the government to accept the office of superintendent of the female nursing establishment in the English General Military Hospitals in Turkey, you will, on your arrival there, place yourself at once in communication with the chief army medical officer of the hospital at Scutari, under whose orders and direction you will carry on the duties of your appointment. Everything relating to the distribution of the nurses, the hours of their attendance, their allotment to particular duties, is placed in your hands, subject, of course, to the sanction and approval of the chief medical officer. But the selection of the nurses in the first instance is placed solely under your control, or under that of persons to be agreed upon between yourself and the Director General of the Army and Ordnance Medical Department, and the persons so selected 
will receive certificates from the director general or the principal medical officer of one of the general hospitals without which certificates no one will be permitted to enter the hospital in order to attend the sick in like manner the power of discharge on account of illness or of dismissal for misconduct inaptitude or other cause is vested entirely in yourself but in cases of such discharge or dismissal the cost of the return passage of such person home will if you think it advisable and if they proceed at once or so soon as their health enables them be defrayed by the government directions will be given by the mail of this day to engage one or two houses in a situation as convenient as can be found for attendance at the hospital or to provide accommodation in the barracks if thought more advisable and instructions will be given to lord stratford de redcliffe to afford you every facility and assistance on landing at constantinople as also to dr menzies the chief medical officer of the hospital at scutari who will give you all the aid in his power and every support in the execution of your arduous duties the cost of your passage both out and home of yourself and the nurses who may accompany you or who may follow you will be defrayed by the government as also the cost of house rent subsistence etc etc and i leave to your discretion the rate of pay which you may think it advisable to give to the different persons acting under your authority in the meanwhile sir john kirkland the army agent has received orders to honor your drafts to the amount of one thousand pounds for the necessary expense of outfit traveling expenses etc etc of which sum you will render an account to the purveyor of the forces at scutari you will for your current expenses payment of wages etc etc apply to the purveyor through the chief medical officer in charge of the hospital who will provide you with the necessary funds i feel confident that with a view to the fulfillment of the arduous task you have undertaken you will impress upon those acting under your orders the necessity of the strictest attention to the regulations of the hospital and the preservation of that subordination which is indispensable in every military establishment and i rely on your discretion and vigilance carefully to guard against any attempt being made among those under your authority selected as they are with a view to fitness and without any reference to religious creed to make use of their position in the hospitals to tamper with or to disturb the religious opinions of the patients of any denomination whatever and at once to check any such tendency and to take if necessary severe measures to prevent its repetition i have the honor to be madame your most obedient servant sydney herbert the instructions promised in this letter were duly sent to the commander of the forces the purveyor-in-chief and the principal medical officer and the way was smoothed for miss nightingale as they thought in downing street by supplementary letters to some of the officials a letter was sent to the purveyor-general october nineteen in which mr sidney herbert trusts that you will use every endeavor to assist miss nightingale in the performance of the arduous duties she has voluntarily undertaken the success of which must necessarily depend upon the assistance and cooperation of others and cannot fail to be of great benefit to those gallant men who have suffered in the service of their country similarly dr charles trevelyan 
assistant secretary to the treasury, remarking that the commissariat officers are the bankers and stewards of the army, wrote, as he told Miss Nightingale, October 20, to Commissary General Filder and Deputy Commissary General Smith, the senior officer at Scutari, to request that they will from the first give you all the support they are able and instruct their officers of every grade to do the same. Any difficulties which might confront her would not be caused, it seemed, by lack of support at home. 4. Private support was forthcoming as readily as official. Mr. Henry Reeve, an old friend of Miss Nightingale and her family, rejoicing that she had now an opportunity of action worthy of her, spoke to the great Delaney, and requested him to direct Mr. MacDonald, who was being sent out to administer the Times Fund, to cooperate with Miss Nightingale. Mr. MacDonald was a man, as Mr. Reeve testified, and as Miss Nightingale was to discover, to the great advantage of their common cause, of remarkable intelligence and activity. Two days after the receipt of her official instructions, five days after her interview with Mr. Herbert, Miss Nightingale and her party left London, October 21. The amount of work which fell upon Miss Nightingale during the ten days, October 12 through 21, was enormous, and some of the details she was obliged to delegate to others. The headquarters of the expedition during its outfit were established at Mr. Sidney Herbert's house in Belgrave Square, and there Miss Mary Stanley and Mrs. Bracebridge interviewed applicants. Miss Nightingale, foreseeing, only too truly, as the event was to show, the difficulty both of finding suitable women and of supervising them, was inclined to limit the number to twenty. Mr. Herbert, thinking that such a new departure should be made on a considerable scale, proposed a larger number, and Miss Nightingale gave way. Forty was the number agreed upon, but the material which offered itself was not promising. Here we sit all day, wrote Miss Stanley. I wish people who may hereafter complain of the women selected could have seen the set we had to choose from. All London was scoured for them. We sent emissaries in every direction to every likely place. We felt ashamed to have in the house such women as came. One alone expressed a wish to go from a good motive. Money was the only inducement. Ultimately, thirty-eight nurses were obtained. Mr. Herbert, in the concluding passage of his instructions, relied on Miss Nightingale's vigilance to prevent religious tampering. This was an instruction which she had discussed with him, for she foresaw, again only too well, the odium theologicum that might confront her. She was primarily concerned to get the best nurses as such, but she was anxious also that the different churches or shades should be represented. In this desire she was in large measure disappointed. Application was made both to St. John's House, an institution inclined towards Tractarianism, and to the Protestant Institution for Nurses in Devonshire Square. In each case the answer was returned that nurses could only be supplied if they were to be subject to their own committees. The government's condition of subjection to Miss Nightingale's control was rejected. The authorities of St. John's House proposed that their nurses should be accompanied by the master of the house to act as their guardian. It will readily be imagined 
how impossible Miss Nightingale's position would have been on such terms. The proposal shows, incidentally, how little some people understood of the conditions of discipline necessary in a military hospital. Mr. Sidney Herbert, the Chaplain General of the Forces, and Miss Nightingale met at the Council of St. John's House. The point of Miss Nightingale's exclusive control was conceded, and the master stayed at home. The Lady Superior of St. John's House at this time was Miss Mary Jones, who, to the end of her life, remained one of the most valued and tenderly devoted of Miss Nightingale's friends. The authorities in Devonshire Square, on the other hand, would not surrender the point of separate control, and accordingly no nurses were supplied by the distinctively Protestant institution. We are only vexed, wrote Lady Verney, because Flo so earnestly desired to include all shades of opinion, to prove that all, however they differed, might work together in a common brotherhood of love to God and man. The party, as ultimately recruited, was composed of ten Roman Catholic sisters, five from Bermondsey and five from Norwood, eight Anglican sisters from Miss Sellen's home at Devonport, six nurses from St. John's House, and fourteen from various English hospitals. It has often been supposed that the nurses who accompanied Miss Nightingale were ladies of gentle birth, but, with a few exceptions, this was not the case. On the eve of their departure, the nurses were addressed by Mr. Herbert in his dining-room. He told them that if any desired to turn back, now was the time of decision, and he impressed upon them that all who went were bound implicitly to obey Miss Nightingale in all things. All started on their ways, we are told, strengthened by his heart-stirring words, and cheered no less by the sunny brightness of his presence than by his kindly and unfailing sympathy. Unhappily, the effect was not in all cases permanent, as we shall hear. 5. Do not answer this, wrote a minister to Miss Nightingale, for I am sure you must have more on your hands now than a Secretary of State. But what struck those about her was her perfect calm. No one is so well fitted as she to do such work, wrote Lady Canning to Lady Stuart de Rothesey, October 17. She has such nerve and skill, and is so wise and quiet. Even now she is in no bustle and hurry, though so much is on her hands, and such numbers of people volunteer services. She had only one worry. Her pet owl had died. When her family were leaving Embley to see her off, the feeding of the owl was forgotten in the hurry and flurry. It was embalmed, and the only tear its mistress shed through that tremendous week, says her sister, was when I put the little body into her hands. Poor little beastie, it was odd how much I loved you. For the rest, she was as calm and composed in this furious haste, wrote her sister, October 19, with the war office, the military medical board, half the nurses in London to speak to, her own committee and institution, as if she were going out for a walk. She was quiet because, like Wordsworth's happy warrior, in the heat of excitement, she kept the law in calmness made and saw what she foresaw. Like the character drawn by another master hand, in the tumult she was tranquil, because she had pondered when at rest. A small black pocket-book is preserved in which were found, at Miss Nightingale's death, 
a few of the many letters received just before she left England for the East. Perhaps they were the very last letters received. Perhaps they were there for other reasons. One spoke of a mother's love. Monday morning. God speed you on your errand of mercy, my own dearest child. I know he will, for he has given you such loving friends, and they will be always at your side to help in all your difficulties. They came just when I felt that you must fail for want of strength, and more mercies will come in your hour of need. They are so wise and good, they will be to you what no one else could. They will write to us and save you in that and in all ways. They are to us an earnest of blessings to come. I do not ask you to spare yourself for your own sake, but for the sake of the cause. Ever thine. Another letter reminded her of the love of God. God will keep you, and my prayer for you will be that your one object of worship, pattern of imitation, and source of consolation and strength may be the sacred heart of our divine Lord, always yours for our Lord's sake. Henry E. Manning and a third among them was from the friend whose life she had declined to share, but whose sympathy was still precious to her. My dear friend, he wrote October 18, I hear you are going to the East. I am happy it is so, for the good you will do there, and the hope that you may find some satisfaction in it yourself. I cannot forget how you went to the East once before, and here am I writing quietly to you about what you are going to do now. You can undertake that, when you could not undertake me. God bless you, dear friend, wherever you go. End of Part 2, Chapter 1, The Call